So let's uh, let's review what we talked about last time for a minute, and then before we break into the new stuff. And there's a couple, there's a little bit of backtracking I want to do. I'll explain in a minute. But we said that we wanted to glorify God first. And last time we looked at Psalm 19:1, how the heavens declare the glory of God and the skies proclaim the work of His hands. And then we went ahead and uh, I went ahead and told you a number that I couldn't even write properly. Ken caught me on it. This time I think I've got it right though. If you if you look at it now, I've got the right number of zeros. I think it's uh, estimated 76 trillion stars in the in the universe, which man cannot count. The Bible says we can't count it, so we can estimate it. But and it also says that God knows each of them by number and name, which is pretty deep, pretty profound. And then we looked at some Hubble's greatest hits of the galaxies and the stars, and it looks really amazing how far that thing could see. James Webb, even further, if you've seen any of the, of the shots by that thing. Okay, we talked about what is young Earth creation view. And it generally holds that, uh, I've never heard of any young Earth creationist that holds the universe to be over 10,000 years old. Um, majority of them are under 7,000. I'm not in that group anymore. I'll explain why in just a minute. But uh, they also hold Genesis to be historical, not metaphorical, not figurative, and not semi-poetic. Uh, where do they get the resources for it? Genesis 5 and 11 have chronologies, and then Bible chronologists have studied from Abraham to Christ. And, of course, we all know how long it's been since uh, Jesus was born, right? We do know that, right? You like the fact that when they say, I, they try to name it uh, CE and BCE, even a lot of Christians do that. And I'm like, so? It's a common, it's common era. It's commonly held that it's been 2,023 years since, what? <laughs> anyway, that, uh, there's my table that I had the audacity to insert my name in with my calculation for the age of the earth. Uh, amongst these like Bible chronology experts and and uh, yep legend in my own mind but um, we also went over the kind of historically what happened to it it was always really the scientific underpinning it was the foundation of science pretty much as far as the age of the universe was concerned until around the 1800s I mentioned a couple of books that are really eye-opening when people think, oh, well, science is really objective. They're just after the truth, after the fact. Just the facts, ma'am. Well, maybe not. If you take a look in uh, some of their correspondence with, with each other, you'll see that they did want to eliminate the Mosaic record. Uh, particularly, I'm thinking of Lyell, but there were others as well. Uh, and there were some falsifications and stuff that happened. Um, there were clergy compromises with those ideas. And that ended up kind of splitting into a, a number of different creation views. I, I think we covered the, let's see, I think I'm going to, I'll cover those in just a second. Oh, yeah. And then the resurgence of it. How did it bounce back? How did creation, how did young earth creation start coming back around? And that was this book right here is tiny, but it's called The Genesis Flood, published by Morris and Whitcomb in 1961. And a lot of people hold that to be kind of the trigger. They call those guys the founders of the modern creationist movement, I guess you could say. Okay, we also took a look at some other creation views, atheism. There was expelled where scientists, even when they start seeing things look designed, if they try to bring that to the table, out to the outskirts you go. 
Uh, there's that guy who got a mouth on him who actually said, remember, I don't know, those of you that were here, that guy's name is Lawrence Krauss. He's a physicist and cosmologist out of Arizona University, and he's the one that said, forget Jesus, the stars died for you. And I said, that's kind of concerning if your children are getting taught under him. And then here were the different creation views that we covered. Very briefly, framework hypothesis is the one that says basically Genesis is figurative or and or semi-poetic. It is not accepted as history. Then there was the gap theory, which uh, says that there was a huge amount of time between the first two verses of the Bible, Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 1-2. And I think uh, I've come to learn that those, those creation views may or may not subscribe to theistic evolution. Some of them believe it was a really, really long time, but God still miraculously created things from what I understand. And then other ones say, well, now just things evolved naturally. Day age is the one that says basically, well, day one was really this long eon or epic where a lot of stuff could have happened. It wasn't a 24-hour evening and the morning were the first day. Okay. And then there's one that I skipped last time. Sorry, Phil. He gave a whole Bible class on it several weeks of, of one that it doesn't really have a name from what I understand, but he, he nicknamed it the Temple Inauguration View. And that one comes from this book, The Lost World of Genesis 1. And more on that in just a minute. Uh, we talked about the relevance. Is younger is it really important that we care how old the earth is? And I said, well, to some, no. There's my beautiful bride right there. Still with me after 33 years. <laughs> Quit looking at me. Hey, I said 30. It's almost 33. Okay, come November. Wait, you might as well say 33 right now. You're in your 33rd year. Okay, <laughs> I'll take that one. Uh, but to some, yes, I said it was important, and sometimes it actually crippled people's faith, like this fellow here. He used to be an evangelist, remember Charles Templeton, used to work with Billy Graham and had conversations with him, ended up believing in no God and wrote a book called Farewell to God. Um, yeah, I, I know you're only supposed to put like something like seven, seven items per slide, and I, I appear to have a blatant disregard for that rule. But back to this, Lost World of Genesis 1. Basically what that view, what that creation view says, and the one I skipped last time, is that Genesis 1 is not concerned as much with material creation, but rather the establishment of functions in the created order. And I, I read a, just a few days ago, I read a, a paper. I was, I was seeing if anybody was refuting it or not. And there was at least one person that wrote a, a professional paper that agreed with this guy. Um... Ancient Near East creation accounts usually concerned with function rather than material origins. Hebrew term bara to create refers to the assignment of functions. Now, young earth creationists consider that probably both, really, uh, both the, the material, the physical and the function. The beginning state of Genesis 1-2 is one that lacks function, not materiality. And so then I guess after that, this author considers it to be the assignment of those functions. First three days establish major life-sustaining functions, time, weather, food. 
Days four through six, God assigns functions to plants and animals. Uh, it was good is a comment on function, according to this author. God's rest on the seventh day implies he's taken up residence in his temple since everyone in the ancient world knew that deity rests in a temple and only in a temple. Excuse me. There's a, a video on here. These are posted, by the way. These slideshows and, and uh, discussions are posted uh, on the church website under sermons, right? Under connect, right? Okay. Yeah, took me a minute to find that last time. Anyway, that video is like an hour and 15 minutes long. We're not going to look at it right now, but I, I did include the link in case you want to go on there and look more into this creation view. Um, I looked at another commentary on his book, and it was suggesting... Uh, no, actually, it took a quote from his page 153 that you could accept biological evolution as a descriptive mechanism uh, describing how God carried out his purposes. So this one is theistic evolution friendly, I guess you could say. And uh, that comment also said that if you're a diehard young earth creation, you might have a bit of a hard time. So it tends to lean more towards theistic evolution. All right. And now for part two, let's see some creation that glorifies God. This is from Psalm 148. Praise the Lord from the earth, you great sea creatures and all ocean depths, lightning and hail and snow and clouds, stormy winds that do his bidding. There's a pretty cool song based on that, isn't there? You mountains and all hills, fruit trees and all cedars, wild animals and all cattle, small creatures and flying birds, kings of the earth and all nations, you princes and all rulers on earth, young men and women, old men and children. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for his name alone is exalted. His splendor is above the earth and the heavens. Let me show you something that really was amazing to me when I learned about it. Okay, well, I'll get to that in just a second. Let's take a look here. This is, uh, anybody know what that is? Looks kind of 1800-ish. Yeah, good job. Yeah, It's Darwin's notes. He That's when he drew that tree of life. That was branching out and said he wrote in a corner, I think. Darwin's original. Unknown cause of change. Didn't know what mutations were really at the time. But I'm going to show you something kind of surprising about that right here in a minute. Okay, then they developed it a bit more. And then a lot of times you can see in the textbooks and stuff, they'll have the branches labeled what uh, family or genus of animal goes up those branches. And then it splits more and more. So that's a newer one. Then, now look at it. <laughs> they had twisted in a spiral to make, you know, to show all of the different branches they were trying to display. Modernized spiral one. Okay. Well, as opposed to that, young earth creationists tend to hold that there is rather than a tree of life, an orchard of life. The Bible said that he, he created each one of them after their kind. And, what, well, what is the kind? We've got things broken down into, you know, family, phylum, genus, species, and everything. So, kind would, uh, according to baromenologists, creation guys that study this stuff, that would be approximately at the genus or family level, somewhere in between that. Pro mostly family, I think, that it relates to. But remember, those are our designations. We're the ones that assigned animal types, the family, and the species. We're the ones that organized it and broke it down. 
So that may not be exactly what was meant by kind, but they could reproduce after their kind. And so instead of a tree of life, you have a bunch of little trees of life. So you have the gray wolf. It's got all these genes already created in it, not from mutations, but it already had all the genetic info in it deliberately by God to uh, diversify into all of these other different kinds or types of dogs. You would call it, I guess, the canine kind. But does that mean, did you ever wonder, well, there's an awful lot of species roaming this planet. There's over a million, by the way. How did Moses get them all on the ark? <laughs> Come on, I was going to see if anybody would catch it. Yes, 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 I know it. That's an old trick question. That's an oldie. Yeah, how, how in the world would Noah have been able to get them all on the ark, right? A million different species. How would he be able to feed them all? What do you think? He took chihuahuas, poodles, uh, Pekingese, and he had a couple of wolves, okay? <laughs> That's it. They've diversified since. Well, what's the difference between that and evolution? After its kind, there are limits. They're, they're not gaining, and you can look this up and check it out for yourself, they're not gaining genetic information. Believe it or not, going from that wolf right there down to, I wish we had another level down here where we could put the chihuahua down below it, but going from that one to the other is a one-way ticket. You could take a wolf, and if you could live long enough, you could crossbreed them until you got your chihuahua. You could not take a pair of chihuahuas and go back the other way and get wolves again. You can get, I've seen them back up one step, though. They were able to, to go like one level back up, but that's as far as they could go. It's to my knowledge. That's all I've ever seen. Isn't that called cloning? <laughs> well, cloning gets a a duplicate of the genes, the exact copy of the, the creature, and they say it inherits the age, too, as well. But, I mean, I'm assuming they're using really basic cells to, to clone, but, uh, yeah, uh, they they can repeat, they can make kind of a cop. Dolly the sheep was pretty famous. I heard there's some pretty unethical stuff going on um, that they're actually trying to get where they can raise babies outside the womb, don't need a womb to, a uterus to do it. That's going to be a lot of suffering. That's going to be bad. Um, tampering with forces. Anyway, so there's the orchard that we, uh, young earth folks, tend to view it as. I think all of us do. What about environmental adaptability within a specific subset? Okay, now that's a little different. You see what I said about the wolf? He, he had all those different kinds come out of his genes by simply losing genetic information. Each level you go down like that, there's less genetic info, and you can't get it back. That's one big problem with evolution. It's not creating more genetic info. It's mutating. Yeah, it's changing stuff. There is one called a frame shift, and they say that that can be duplicated and cause extra, but it's like having two copies of the same encyclopedia. It doesn't really generate new information, just another copy of the same thing. Anyway, what about environmental adaptability? This is what I'm saying about glorifies God. Watch this. Are they favorable mutations or deliberate design by God? I've always wondered that about mutations, too. I'm thinking, are they interpreting these things right? Is that really mutations? Because the genome, the, our genes are incredibly complex. 
And they've got repair mechanisms and all kinds of... They've got things... Well, I don't want to give it away. Yeah. All right. Continuous environmental tracking. That's what I was shocked and, and just awed by and glorified God for. Uh, let's take a look at the blind cave fish. You've probably heard of them. Eyes went away. They look like that. So you can see they've got just like little dents, I guess, where the eyes used to be. Because they didn't need the eyes. Wasn't an advantage. I saw one author, author claim that it is. I'm not exactly sure how. But in the dark, I guess, that where it's a constant dark environment, they said it was an advantage. But um, they can get... How many generations did, did it take for this to happen? Let me hear some guesses. How many generations before the fish didn't have eyes anymore? This many. This many. <laughs> That's not the. Well, natural selection would be what happens to the populations after this happens. Did the did the eyeless fish live in dark caves better than the eyed fish, if that's an adjective? But did they live better and have advantages over? Or one thing I never hear them talking about though is preference. If you got no eyes, you don't mind living in a completely dark cave. If you have eyes, you, hey, I see some light over there. I think I'm going to swim toward it. You know, thicker fur. Okay, yeah, I'll live up in Alaska. All right. And it just seems like preferences would drive some of the environmental uh, favoritism as well. But anyway, these guys could lose their eyes in one generation. These rapid, repeatable, and complex organism-wide system adaptations make little sense in the context of Darwinian evolution involving mutation and natural selection. However, the data fit perfectly with a model of engineered, organism-driven systems of adaptation built into creatures by the Creator that enable them to continuously track and appropriately adjust to specific environmental changes. More of this stuff, that's by that guy down there in the note, if you want to read some more from him. He was an engineer and then became a medical doctor. Anyway, um, they're finding out more and more of this. I think that it's getting more and more uh, better established that the environment triggers these changes. Big changes, obviously. Right? I heard one about the... Well, here, we'll go on to... They can lose or gain their eyes in one generation. Put them back in the light, guess what? One generation later, they got eyes. That's not evolution. Darwin's finch offspring can get big or small beaks in two years. They can go back and forth. Darwin observed them for a little while off the beagle, right? And it, I guess it wasn't a bad idea at the time. Hey, these ones got little pipsqueak beaks. They have to eat bugs. These ones have big old behemoth beaks that can, looks like it can crack a walnut as big as its head. <laughs> well, two years later, if depending on the food supply and the conditions, guess what? Eh, what a small beak you have. The better to eat bugs, I guess. Or to, I think it's actually they can reach down into crevices better. Yeah, they can get the food. They can get the food that the big beakers cannot. Yes, I invent my own adjectives as I need them. All right, then two years later, guess what? <laughs> Back to big beaks again. So these genes are getting turned on and off. They're not mutating into these things, which is a pretty strong argument that God actually engineered it to be that way. Oh, there's Lamarck. I just briefly was going to mention him. He uh, he actually was an evolutionist, apparently, and he thought that 
animals could inherit acquired characteristics. So if you had children that were working in a blacksmith shop and bam, 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 you know, they're working with their hands and arms all day and, or I mean, uh, let's say a blacksmith does that, right? His theory was, well, that means when he has kids, they'll probably have more Popeye-like forearms, right? You know, they'll be bigger or easier developed, I guess, whatever. But uh, his stuff pretty much got rejected. It's pretty much, yeah. That is a really good question. Thank you for asking that. Yeah, I, that, I'm glad you clarified that. Those big changes I was talking about, let me back up a little bit. Those fish and those birds, it's not that specific organism. Like if that fish right there that has no eyes swam out into the light, they said it would, I guess, uh, develop some pigment, though. But that's not saying that its genes for eyes is going to turn on and it's going to develop eyes. Its offspring would be able to have eyes. So somehow, they're able to sense changes in the environment as needed to adapt in their offspring to give them uh, bigger advantages. And they would have, according to genetics, that have both, both a type of offspring, but under natural selection, those without eyes would be caught. Yeah, that's what that's what's different about. Remember that wolf I showed you with the variation, how they're turning into all those different type of dogs and stuff. It's di this is different than that. This is not the loss of information. It's simply somehow the genome shuts it off so it doesn't get expressed. It makes it like unavailable to the the system to build eyes or you know or in this case uh, the the beaks, bigger smaller beaks. So the the birds the same way. The big beaks. He's not his bird, his beak is not going to shrink in two years on that same animal. But he'll have offspring that can, you know, or it might be a couple generations. Now, I don't know how fast they reproduce, but they did say it took about two years for them to switch beaks. They carry the same genetic code, but it's whether or not it's homologous or, or whether or not they, you, know, you have two of the same or, or you're heterozygous. Sure. Yeah, and, and of course, you could have uh, big and small beaks flying around. Uh, Darwin saw them same, both at the same, same time. Bird would have based upon the genes. Mm -hmm. Some some of the offspring would would have the big beaks. Some would have the small beaks. But depending upon the environmental changes, mm -hmm. natural selection will go for whatever is best. Yeah, that's true. Natural selection is still going to happen. So if the environment says, "Hey, you're having a small beak and being able to reach down in between the cracks and get the food when everybody else is starving to death," their population is going to, you know. Uh, become more prominent, at least for a while. Now, if it shifts back, then maybe the big beaks will be more prominent. So, anyway, Lamarck, I, I said, uh, sounds like maybe he's partially vindicated because he said that the environment could cause this. Didn't Maybe didn't know why, because remember, they didn't know about the new Darwin theory, There's which... There's no fossil record of Lamarck's, whereas there is fossil record for, uh, for Darwin's saying the natural selection as well. Natural selection, you might be able to show with fossil record, uh, like large-scale evolution, there's some mighty gaps. Darwin said there were, too, and it's gotten worse in 150 years. Stephen Jay Gould had a theory because of it called punctuated e equilibrium. But um, if you guys want to study more on evolution stuff, um, come see me. I can give you uh, all kinds of directions to go with it. Okay, relevance. I wanted to back up a little bit more on the relevance of this because uh, there were some shocking statistics and stuff that I didn't get an opportunity to go to last time. Remember when I said, is this relevant? Kathleen said, eh, God created everything. I don't care why. I mean, I don't need the details. 
whereas some other people had destroyed their faith. Um, and then additionally, what I have encountered over the years, this is a book called Already Gone by Ken Ham and Britt Beamer. Beamer is a, um, what do you call the guys like Barna, a research group analyst. There he was. He's passed away, I think, a couple years ago. But um, they, they put this book out, ugh, must have been 10 years ago, I think. It's called Already Gone. And what was the book all about? Well, they published the research findings on faith loss in modern youth. This one probably does concern most people, if you're a parent or grandparent especially. But uh, here's some, some of the stats I was talking about. In a minute, I'll show you some shocking ones. Um, they took 1,000 people in the sample. Uh, they were 20 to 30 years old who had quit church. 40% of them doubted Bible study truth in middle school. 44% of them doubted in high school. We're up to 84% of that demographic, or that 1,000 people anyway. And then 11% doubted in college. So college has this notorious reputation for destroying people's faith, probably for people like Cross, the, the mouth from the south that I played there. Oh, I don't know where he's from. Probably from the East Coast. But um, only 11% really had the nail driven in the coffin in college. A lot of them were affected in middle school and high school. Their faith was starting to crumble in those grade levels. Why? What was happening? What's that? Puberty? Well, if that was so, then previous 20-something generations would be missing from the churches. True. Oh, yeah, that's pounding away. Absolutely. Yeah. I'm thinking that those 11% that doubted in college, put that on top, when the 40 and the 44% doubted got into college, Cemented. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, it's like they like it drove the nail in. It finished it off. Finished them off, right? Okay. Now that's not saying that these people were necessarily rabid atheists, but they had quit church. Excuse me, and they doubted the truth of the Bible. How strongly they doubted, I don't know that it said, because I'm just going by a summary of their stats, their findings. Okay. Here's the alarming stats. Watch this. That is not accidentally reversed. I want to tell you that right now. Sunday school attenders were more likely than non-attenders to what? Disbelieve Bible stories. I had to make it clear because you would probably would have thought I had that backwards. No, Sunday school attenders doubted the Bible more than the non-attenders. What in the world are we doing? Uh, they had a higher tendency to doubt the Bible because it was written by men. Doubt the Bible because it's translated incorrectly. <coughs> Defend abortion. Defend premarital sex. Accept gay marriage. Believe that God used evolution. Uh, doubt the Bible because of secular billions of years. Question the days of creation. View the church as hypocritical. And become anti-church. But oh, and believe good people don't need church. Okay, why? Why was that happening? Now, at this time, I didn't run into it researching this stuff, but I, I have before. It's been a while since I read that, but it, apparently, 
um, they speculate that it's a combination of the secular, anti, probably the cultural bombardment that you were talking about, Kay, plus the secular anti-Bible bombardment in the schools, combined with the way we teach Sunday school, telling the Bible accounts like they're stories or fairy tales, and uh, so maybe multiple forms of apologetics, plus that five close connections that was mentioned by Tyler Godot, I think, recently, right? said if you got five adult connections in the church, you have a lot, a lot better chance of your faith sticking. <clears throat> Probably a lot better chance of surviving this stuff, really. But I'm wondering if both of them shouldn't be in place. Because here we sit and we teach them what happened. I mean, a, sound, a snake spoke to them. Are you sure that's what you want to tell me? Sounds kind of fairy tale like Now, I don't mean that in a blasphemous way. I believe in God's miracles. I mean, he made a donkey talk too, so that's pretty shocking. But, but if they hear that, and it sounds like Grimm's fairy tales, and then they go to school, and they hear, oh, over billions of years, we got the dinosaur, and then we got this and this, until man was created, right? Then, is that having an effect? If we're not reconciling them, if we're not, if we're unable to give an answer for the faith that's in us, compared with what's happening in the culture that they're getting exposed to, is it doing damage? Well, something's doing the damage because they they just recorded the facts on their research. I think they just kind of speculated as to why. They're probably doing more. Uh, I I don't know who he's going to go with now because that fellow passed away, but. Uh, came out with another book uh, later called Ready to Return. That one I haven't researched. I don't know what that one's about. I know that some of that 20-something demographic comes back. Some of them do. Oh. Yeah, I was just talking about the possibility of combining apologetics and, and Bible study and trying to reconcile it with what they're running into out there. And the sticky faith relationships. Combine them. Okay. Let's, let's talk about young earth creation evidence. These are the four categories, but first I wanted to mention a little bit about uh, evidence itself. Here's what happens when we use uh, evidence. Oh, here's, here's a uh, speculation of mine, by the way. That's strictly from me. Any view that includes old earth, billions of years, and or theistic evolution is based on the acceptance of the secular science paradigm. Can, would you agree with that? Where did it come from? How did people get that idea in their head? Because I told you, science, even the early scientists just figured the earth was thousands of years old and went according to the Bible. Usher published his thing in 1600s or something like that. We, I see, think. we see science all the time making mistakes. It's why it's called theory. Yeah. Because it's always theory until they actually can prove it. Right. Evolution is still a theory. So, right. Yeah, and I gave you the example before of the old Greek. Yeah, that's pretty that, pretty good example. Yeah, misinterpreted it. In the middle must have been a cyclops. Right. So I mean, we're doing the same thing with fossils today. Uh -huh. I mean, so far we've gone from uh, uh, reptile skin to feathers. So you know, you don't know what. Okay. Can I modify my statement then? Anybody that accepts the the old Earth evolutionary type of view, I'm not pouncing on you for that, but um, can we say? that at least some kind of observations or evidence interpretation must have put that in their head. Because they wouldn't have got it from the Bible. 
There is no, there's no way to get millions of years from the Bible. <clears throat> You're not talking about the uh, the date aging. That's one of the theories. Yeah, but the reason those guys came out with that, though, what what started them thinking? Science hmm, still can't explain billions of years. The gap, the Precambrian. There's nothing. Oh yeah, that's a, there's that's no a, fossils there. That's a thorn in their shoe, isn't it? Yeah. Cambrian explosion. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, not getting too deep into evolution. The the Bible's not the source of these concepts, according to my uh, theory, my view. Um, I know the Bible's not a science book. I've heard that many times. You're right. It's a history book. And nature is the science book. In fact, Galileo said that he was kind of extreme about it, but he was a science nut, you know. So he said that if we're not studying both books, it's a sin. We need to be reading the Bible for God's specific revelation and studying his creation for the general revelation. You got put on house arrest. <laughs> he did, By yeah. 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 No, he probably knew the Bible better than the Pope. Okay. Um and now we're talking about both. Okay, yeah. All right, here's the thing about evidence. There's Science exists in, uh, I don't know if you'd call it two formats or two venues. Two paradigms. No, that's not correct. It, it exists in two forms, I guess you could say. Operational science uses objective evidence in observable, testable, and repeatable tests in the present. Example. You got... Sodium, this deadly soft silvery metal. You got uh, chlorine, deadly green yellow gas. But when you combine 23 grams of one and 35 grams of the other, every single time you get 58 grams of a safe chemical bond known as table salt, sodium chloride. Just like when you eat uh, fruit pits, yes, they have arsenic in them, but it's not free, it's bonded, so it's safe. Uh, yeah, don't try to eat some <laughs> just raw arsenic. That wouldn't be good. But uh, this is operational science. Now, stay with me a minute. Why did I bring that up about evidence? Because I tend to... Oh, yeah, yeah. Sometimes when I'm on conversations about this stuff, about the you know, young earth creation, oh, I suppose you think the earth is flat too. Hey, why don't you throw chemistry out while we're at it? So I get a lot of... The hits about that. I haven't been in those conversations as much recently, but uh, no, I do accept operational science, okay? When we can test it and repeat it in the present, okay, that's fine with me. This is a different kind of evidence. Historical science uses the interpretation of the evidence for an inference to the best explanation or basically a reasonable conclusion. Who does things like that? These guys. I don't think I've ever seen an episode of that. <laughs> yeah. Crime scene investigators. They put a theory of the case together. It's based on a theory or an assumption of the case. That's what causes them to interpret the evidence the way they do. Sometimes the preponderance of the evidence causes them to change their theory of the case unless the theory has become their brainchild. Then it's hard to let it go. That's what they mean by brainchild. They've kind of fallen in love with it and they can't let it go, even when evidence starts to lead them away from it. I'm sorry? That's because they're in place of case. <laughs> yeah, that was another example, right? Okay, anybody know who that is? Can you guys see it okay? Is this TV all right? Jean Benet Ramsey. Yep, they had their theory of the case and. Whoops, what happened? 
Um, I don't know if I'm fully up to date on what happened. Somebody confessed to her murder, I guess. And I think, if I'm not mistaken, correct me if I'm wrong, the prosecutors were going with it at first. It took them a while before evidence showed this guy didn't really do it. And then they threw, his, threw him out as a suspect, even though he had confessed. I have no idea why people do that. If they didn't do it and they confessed to it, do they want the notoriety? I don't know. Maybe they feel they want their 15 minutes of uh, infamy. It's better than obscurity, I guess. I don't know. Yeah, maybe. Anyway, if I'm not mistaken, it, it was kind of hard for them to let that go until enough evidence and enough pressure was like, okay, yeah, he didn't do it. The problem with that, Mike, is that uh, scientific method is based on Aristotle's theory, or, uh, argument of uh, deductive reasoning. And deductive reasoning says you, you do a premise or a theory, right? and you're supposed to analyze and take everything that you can find and whatever the, the analysis is, the result must be able to come back and prove or disprove the theory. The problem we got is when being human, when we start going into something, we start feeling like it. And, and lawyers and prosecutors sure. the same way. They'll start going down a track, and they think they have it. And and that's the problem with with, with evolution. Francis Bacon, in fact, Aristotle said that deductive reasoning was a big problem for people, and and he said it differently, but it's basically you're jumping to conclusions. Yeah. And Bacon said the same thing, and his yeah. inductive reasoning is what we should be using for scientific method. Inductive reasoning says, I don't go know from what the specific to the general. everything and let's look at all the facts yeah. and let's see what comes out. I'm going to show you something on day, we're on day two right now, right? I'm going to show you something on day, it's either three or four. That is absolutely shocking that should put evolution night night once and for all, but it will not. Nothing will. I don't care what the evidence is. It's not going away. It's not going away. I disagreed, in fact, with one guy, one creation fellow that was, oh, the, the speaker at our last uh, conference, you know, our meeting right here. Uh, he felt like evolution's falling apart after he brought up that uh, continuous environmental tracking, how things adjust to the environment. I don't think it's going to fall apart. There are people that absolutely have to have it to have a coherent worldview. How can you be an atheist and say evolution didn't happen? That's why some people adore Darwin. You guys ever see Dawkins coming up to his statue? It's like, good grief, he's looking at him just with just love in his eyes, I guess. He's looking at his statue. It's like he's worshipping it or something. Anyway, um, yeah, deductive reasoning, inductive reasoning. I wish that we could do it just about flawlessly without our biases and stuff. But... The biases come in. Oh, here we go. Here's an opportunity for you guys to do it. Ready? It's a little simple case for you to solve. There's a spider mark on a window. There's a dead bird body below the window. What would you like to conclude, detectives? That the bird hit the window. Alternative explanations. Are there other possibilities? Maybe not probabilities, but could something else happen? <laughs> I hadn't thought of that one, but that's really good. Yeah, the one was more maneuverable. I get you. Ladder strapped at the bird. There's no blood on the window. Yeah, that's true. There's no blood on the window, but I guess there usually isn't. 
it, it, the splatter doesn't hit by the time they fall off. Inconclusive? Okay. Other possible explanations. I was I was thinking, what if a little kid was uh, malicious and had the bird captured and went up and <laughs> bah, smacked him against the window? <laughs> yeah, of course it is. It was now it becomes a murder instead of an accident. Yeah. Okay. Um, but what would make the analysis more conclusive? We admit there's other possibilities, however remote they may be. What would make it conclusive? If you were there when it happened. If you were there when it's it happened. Green camera. Got it. <laughs> oh, oh, my word. I can't believe you said that. You got ahead of me. There it is. <laughs> if your camera on your porch saw the poor little thing, smack the window. Now we know. Okay, there was no nefarious uh, malfeasance there. He was just. Scrape it off. <laughs> Here, kitty kitty. Give him the body. <laughs> Poor birdie. What a way to go. Hey, hun, come look at this footage. <laughs> That's terrible. It's going to sit there. And... Oh, there's one I just put for fun. That one actually saw it in time and slammed on the air brakes. It's got some big wind, uh, wings. It's not real sky. All right. So we can see that evidence is interpreted in a couple different ways. Beware the brainchild syndrome. It's hard to let them go. Once it's your favorite. Oh, uh, I, I don't have time to show you this right now, but uh, this guy right here, you know the the Lucy, the hominid Australopithecus africanus, the the little supposedly between ape and humans. Well, it was, I'll let you read the case on that. That's, the, the evidence is horrible. I mean, it, it, the stuff was scattered all over the place. First of all, miles apart from each other, and. Um, this guy right here, they became so convinced. Talk about a brainchild. This guy, be they became so convinced that Lucy was a little hominid that started walking upright that when the hip bones, the actual hip bones found and, and in this uh, specimen here, didn't show upright walking, he took a Dremel and ground the bones until they fit where they could walk upright and saw no problem with that. There we go. That's better. You see what I mean by brainchild? Too attached. Awful lot of bias can be in evidence interpretations. Now, here's um, this has got to do with evidence and stuff. Like I said, I don't want to go deeply into evolution, but this is the kind of things a lot of times you see in textbooks or exhibits and stuff. And what I want you guys to do, can you pick out the actual physical evidence on the slide? Picture of the physical evidence. Okay, I don't have bones right here in front of you. Anybody want to take a shot? The the. <laughs> oh, yeah, there, oh, I forgot about that. <laughs> yeah, that, that's actually a physical specimen, but nope. That, don't count that what's up in the upper right corner. Okay, here's what it, anybody ever wonder why those skulls are different colors? One of the colors represents what they actually found, such as ting, 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 tang, tong. Those. That's the actual stuff. Well, what's all the white stuff then? What's that? 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 What are those? That is artistic rendering, to put it together. 
One skull. I can't remember how many different ways they put it together. It was like seven different ways. Seven different times. It was Greek scientists. Give it to a Greek scientist? No, they were Greek scientists. Uh, okay. Yep. All, their all the possibilities, yeah. Jump into the conclusions, right. Okay. Uh, everything else, artistic rendering. A lot of evolution stuff in the textbooks is artistic rendering. If there's one thing that we can instill in our grandchildren, this is me talking, in our grandchildren and children, it's do not accept the concepts in school without actual evidence and critical thinking. Let's don't forget about that. Could it be something else? What was the actual evidence found, teacher? I mean, I don't know. I guess some teachers would probably kind of pummel them into submission until they just keep quiet. <laughs> they ask too many questions. All right. Scriptural evidence. We get about uh, 11 or 12 minutes. Uh, again, I can't trust those clocks, can I? He's got his prompt people over here and the, the tardy people, the teacher, he puts them over here for that clock. Okay. Uh, yeah, let's take the, some scriptural evidence. I said we start getting into that. And then class two, and, I'm sorry, class three and four, we'll cover the other ones, astronomy, biology, and geology. Please don't miss any of those, actually, because you're going to see stuff. I told you, I, I, I guaranteed you I would show you things you probably have not seen. I shouldn't 100%, but you very, 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 very likely have not seen it. We can start a pool of bets if you wish. I'll come away very wealthy. No, <laughs> I can't say that for sure. Okay, scriptural evidence. Here we go. Uh, this is just kind of interpretation of evidence cartoon. There's a guy named Dan Leith uh, that does cartoons for Answers in Genesis. And, and it's kind of showing how they're both looking at the same physical specimen, but they're interpreting it in different ways. Their interpretation is different. And then actually what the author of the cartoon says right there, though, is what the artist says is... Uh, our life should be additional evidence for the work of the Creator. You notice how it says love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Well, those are behavioral. Okay, evidence from Scripture. Here we go. Mark 10.6 said, God made them male and female at the beginning of creation. Now, if you want to accept theistic evolution, and I told you I used to subscribe to the possibility of theistic evolution. I now reject it on both scriptural and scientific grounds. We can talk about that more in detail if you like. Um, and you can send people to talk to me too if you, if you feel like it could help. But it says he made them male and female at the beginning of creation. That was Jesus that said that, by the way. Did he mean that creation has been around for 13 billion years and marriage came about at the end of that creation? Or did he mean it when he said the beginning of creation? It's hard to put theistic evolution into that. Now, if you want to look at Hugh Ross, maybe he's got an answer for that. Uh, he's on uh, Reasons to Believe, I think. Reasons to Believe, he's got a website. Okay. Mark 13, 19 says, For in those days there will be such tribulation as not been has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be. That was Jesus again. So my question is, did man's suffering begin at the end of the 13 billion years of creation, progressive creation, I guess, or near the beginning? 13 billion years of dying and killing and struggling to survive and bleeding and death before sin and all of that, isn't that 
a lot of suffering? Well, then how do we reconcile Jesus' view on it? It's my conviction that Jesus is a young earth creationist. And he's the one who created everything. Because he talks about Genesis as real things that happened. As actual history. See what I mean? It's hard to... This, we'll go on. Okay. Luke 11, 50, and then part of the next verse says, so that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation. From the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah who perished between the altar and the sanctuary. So if Abel was near the foundation of the world, he, and he was considered like the first prophet, I guess, it sounds like. I know it doesn't say that word for word, but it seems safe to conclude it because Jesus included him in that, uh, in that demographic of the prophets. But since the foundation of the world, John 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him, nothing was made that was made. So everybody's probably well aware already that Jesus is the Word and that He created, God created everything through Him. Jesus did teach in parables, so He wasn't beyond using figurative speech in His teachings, but these don't sound like that. And in fact, parables tended to say, and he told them a parable, and on with the story you'd go. I'm not saying that happens every case. But it just doesn't seem like these are parabolic, if that's another adjective of mine. Okay, here's... What's that? It's a mathematic parabolic. <laughs> yeah, oh, oh, yeah, you're right. So... Um, Exodus 20.11, what does that say? For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. Who wrote that? Be careful. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, please. Alright, I'll give you a hint. Don't say Moses. Who wrote it the first time? I'll give you another hint. He carved it into stone with his finger. God. God personally wrote that. In six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth and the sea and then all that is in them and then rested on the seventh day. Sounds pretty literal. Was man expected to rest a day or an eon? Sabbath day, in other words. Hallowed the Sabbath day. I mean, I suppose some people could argue that it was a pattern. Whoops. But then there's that pesky evening and morning were the first day. I know that they do say that the uh, days used to be a little bit, was it longer or shorter? They, the earth's rotation has actually slowed down a little bit. Okay, so days used to be a little bit faster, but it was only a few minutes. That wouldn't change the length of years very much. Okay, Psalm 33. I know we're down to a few minutes left. 
Uh, Psalm 33, 6-9 says, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and all the host of them by the breath of his mouth. For he spoke, and it was done. He commanded, and it stood fast. I realize that fast in this case, to be fair, doesn't mean speedy. It means stationary. Did he say that he spoke and it began? Or did it say that he spoke and it was done? It was done. It didn't begin a 13 billion year period. Well, Earth is 4.55 something billion according to their theory. Um, Colossians 1. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things consist. I think some say hold together. Oh, this one was just kind of my curiosity. Did the, if, if we subscribe to evolution, did the angels watch it? Did they already exist? I mean, did he create those immediately? I'm assuming they didn't evolve slowly over a long period of time, but I was just curious about that one. That's not even really argumentative. So, sum it up. Jesus didn't seem to be treating the Old Testament accounts as figurative, but as actual historical events that occurred. God himself wrote by his own hand that in six days he created the heavens and the earth and everything in them. It's not too hard for God. He didn't even have to take that long if he didn't want to. It, oh, here we go. I've always loved how God's miracles were so thorough, but this added another one, another uh, feature of them, and that's instantaneous. I've always loved how they were thorough. People could not argue with them. Um, Elijah on Mount Carmel, what happened? They say, oh, that's a trick. He's got some sparks under there. He soaked that thing so bad it had water in the moat. It burned up the water too. How are you going to explain that? Gasoline hadn't even come around yet. Well, they had, uh, I guess they had kerosene, but they knew good and well it was God that did it, right? Jesus in the, in the Talmud, his enemies wrote that he was a Jewish sorcerer that led Israel astray. Why? Because they didn't deny that he did miracles. They were just trying to accuse him of doing it by Satan. So God's miracles are conclusive. And this is, is pointed out to me that they're also immediate. Okay? When he calmed the wind and the waves, if it had taken a half an hour or 45 minutes or an hour, he got lucky. No, they were scared. When he said, cease, be still, peace, be still, they looked at him like, who is this? Um... So it was with all his miracles. He didn't speak and wait for days, weeks, months, or years for things to happen. He spoke and it was done. So when he said, let there be in Genesis 1, it didn't take long ages for things to come into existence. That was a quote actually from Ken Ham. Um, from did Jesus say that he created everything in six days? It's, it's a chapter in his, the New Answers book. Okay. So, I know that some of this is probably, I mean, I don't know if any of this made anybody uncomfortable because um, of what you've seen in science class or in college or if you're a hardcore scientist, but I too am a student of science along with you. And like I said, there's things that I've observed and studied now 
There's no way. I couldn't even be an atheist now. If I get angry at God, I'm going to have to be like Jonah. Just rebel against Him openly, I guess. Because I've seen too many things that coincide with the Bible. And I'd like to show you those if you come back on day three and day four. I'll be hanging around a little bit after uh, after class for you know if you want to ask me some questions while I'm putting stuff away. Other than that, you guys can consider yourself dismissed. I'm sorry I didn't leave much time for question and answer period. Um, I'll try to at least on the fourth class make sure I leave plenty of time for that. And and please feel free to interrupt me while we do these discussions, okay? Hey, I'm Eddie White, the senior minister for the Eastside Church of Christ. Sure want to thank you for joining us today on our podcast. I hope today's message was indeed a blessing to you like to invite you to browse our website at eastsidesprings.com to get more information or to contact us. And as always, we indeed welcome you to join us for our worship service in Colorado Springs as we seek to live out Jesus' mission of making disciples of all nations.